Our scripture meeting this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew. I invite you to take the Pew Bibles and turn to page 938. Page 938. And that is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to fully see and understand that our greatest treasure is you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ruth, and good morning once again, and Happy New Year once again. I hope that you had a very meaningful and restful time over the holidays. Today I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, and that is to preach a sermon on a topic rather than to explain and apply a single passage of Scripture. Now, a lot of people prefer topical sermons to the other kind of sermon, the kind that preachers call expository sermons. When you're preaching on a topic, it's obvious to everyone what the sermon is about, And it's easier to make a connection to everyday life. And those are good things. They're reasonable things to expect from a sermon. So it's not just listeners who like topical preaching. Preaching on topics can feel easier for the preacher, too, especially if you get to choose the topic. Because, like most people, preachers have ready-made opinions that they're only too happy to share The problem is that my job as a preacher is not to spout my own opinion. My job is to try and preach what the Bible says. So for someone like me who is absolutely convinced of this, preaching on a topic is actually much harder than explaining and applying one passage. For me to claim that I know what the Bible says about a topic For me to feel confident that I'm not just giving you my opinion, I need to consider what the whole Bible says about it, not just a few parts. And once that study is done, I may find that my opinion was only partly right, or even that it was just plain wrong, because it was formed by popular opinion more than by the Bible. And the things that I thought would easily connect with people, I no longer feel right about saying, at least not putting them in the first place. Well, this is especially true of a topic like time. The Bible has a lot to say about it, so there's a lot of material to consider. This isn't a surprise. Time is essential to us. You couldn't imagine human life without it. Time is something that we all take for granted. And time is something that we are increasingly obsessed with in our day and age. Whether or not we give it much thought, we all have strong feelings 
about time, and that's because we all have the strong sense that we don't have enough of it. But as I discovered in my study this week, the Bible's perspective on time is quite different from ours. We think of time as a finite resource, something that we can use up, something almost like currency. We even have this saying, time is money. But unlike money and unlike all the true resources in the world, time is the one thing, no matter how powerful or rich or clever we become, the one thing that we can't conquer or buy or scam more of. None of us know how much we'll be given, and we can't get more of it. So we're left with managing the time we know we do have very carefully. We guard our time jealously. jealously. We try to make the most of every second. So if I were just offering you my opinions on time, the benefit of my experience, like most sermons about time, this one would be about time management. And I would be the first to tell you that I am someone for whom time management is an ongoing struggle, something that really doesn't come easily for me. Now, for somebody who isn't good at managing time, I do somehow manage to get a lot done. But that's because I just work and work and work until I'm exhausted and I just have to stop. (laughs) Which I know isn't exactly the healthiest approach, and maybe some of you can relate to that. But what I've discovered in this study is that the Bible tells us very different things about time from what we want to know about it. We're always on the lookout for tips, right? How to be more productive with our work time. How to have more fun in our downtime. How to invest more time with our family and friends. How to know whether the amount of time that we spend resting is healthy rather than lazy. But the Bible says next to nothing about those things. But what it does say as we heard a moment ago, is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is the thing that we all want more of? What do we never have enough of? What do we worry about losing? What do we strongly resent being wasted? Our time. If there's anything we could say that we all treasure, it would be time. And where our treasure is, there our hearts are also. And maybe that's why even we Christians often find that our hearts are unsettled. We lack the thing that we treasure most. We lack time. And this upsets us, grinds us down like almost nothing else can. But unlike other kinds of treasure, time is not something that we can store up. It's not something we can hold on to. Moth and rust may destroy other earthly treasures, but even they need time to do it. Time is the destroyer. Time is something we can never control Time is never something that's in our possession. That's why whenever you try to carve out a share of time for yourself, you're always ending up 
disappointed and frustrated. It's a little ironic that we treat hours, minutes, and seconds as a kind of scarce commodity in an age when we're actually working less and living longer. Other people in other times had far less time to enjoy. But they didn't feel the same kind of anxiety about it that we do. Given that fact, it's maybe not surprising that the Bible doesn't talk about time in the possessive way that we do. The Bible does not present time as a resource. In the Bible, time is a given. Time simply means that something's happened before, something is happening right now, and other things will eventually happen. Time is what connects all those things, but it is not one of those things itself. In the Bible, time is observed and measured, but it's not something to be grasped. Maybe it's partly because we have become much more precise about how we measure time, that we've gotten used to thinking of it as something we own. The most common unit of measurement we use is the hour. We all know, and kids, you can answer me on this question, how long is one day, kids? How long is one day? How do we count how long one day is? 24 hours, exactly. And how long is one minute? 60 seconds, that's true, and, but if we want to relate it to the hour, how many minutes in an hour? 60 minutes in an hour, exactly. So we have 24 hours in a day, and a minute is 1 60th of an hour. So our basic unit is an hour. This is kind of odd math, right? We don't usually count on 24s and 60s, but we've been living with it for so long that it has stuck. It's so deeply ingrained with us that it seems like a solid scientific fact. It's one of the most basic ways that we live and understand the world. But in reality, time is much more slippery than that. As we all know, not all hours feel the same. Some fly by and others creep along. Our age plays a huge role in that perception. Children feel time passing much more slowly than senior citizens do. But so what? Our perception is often very different from what's actually happening out in the world. Why does it matter that most human beings make very bad clocks? Well, first of all, we all live and make real decisions based on how we feel, so that's not nothing. But it's also more than just a perception. As any physicist can tell you, time is flexible. Although none of us will ever feel that flexibility in any discernible way. So both in terms of how we feel and in terms of how of physics, time is kind of a mystery. And in any case, historians tell us that the hour, as we know it, is something that we just made up. There's no fundamental reason that an hour needs to be the length that it is. Well, the Bible's measurement of time is based on something that's not only bigger than humans, it's completely outside of our control. 
We read about this right away in the first chapter of Genesis. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. If you remember, each day of creation is summarized the same way. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Or there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Or there was evening, and there was morning, the third day, etc., etc., so in the Bible, the first measurement of time, the first unit, unit of time we find is the day. And each day is divided into two main parts, evening and morning, darkness and light. And then when you keep reading, you find that the days of creation are grouped in sevens. And the last day in the group of seven is a day of rest. So Genesis sets up the day as the most natural way to measure time as it passes. And it groups seven days together to form a week. And within each day and within each week, there are times of rest and times of activity. On the fourth day of creation, we find the sun, the moon, and the stars. And these not only separate the day from the night, they mark seasons and days and years. It's the moon, we were told in the psalm that Philip read for us as we began our time this morning. It's the moon that marks off the seasons. That's Psalm 104, verse 19. But the Hebrew word that we have translated in our pew Bibles as seasons would be better translated as appointed times. It's not really talking about spring, summer, fall, and winter here. These appointed times were times of feasting, celebrations, which God ordained for the beginning of every month, but also for other times, which we read about in many other places in the Old Testament. And they are always accounted for according to what day of the month that they, that they take place. Well, Genesis 1.14 uses that same word, moedim. So when we read the word seasons there in reference to the celestial bodies, we should really think in terms of new moons or months. Let there be lights in the sky and let them serve as signs to mark appointed times, new moons, months, and days, and years. Well, to sum this all up, whatever other questions Genesis 1 might raise for us, there's no question that in the Bible, the basic unit of time we find is the day. And then it expands outwards from there, from days to weeks, to new moons or months and other feasts, to years. And it even goes farther than that, grouping the years into weeks of years, and then grouping seven groups of seven years. It's celebrated as a very special year, which is called a jubilee. This is all very clear in the Old Testament. It changes slightly in the New Testament because it shows the beginning of the shift towards reckoning by the hour. But the meaning of the word hour that we find in the New Testament is different from what we mean by the word hour. 
The word hour in the New Testament means a few things, actually, but the most technical it gets is as a division of daylight into 12 equal parts. But of course, that's going to change depending on where you live and what time of year it is. The word hour in the New Testament is also a way of saying right about now. In other words, it's a space of time that changes based on what you think now means. So an hour in the Bible never means the regular span of time that we think of. Instead, it's a flexible word, which can mean any given moment in time, any moment in time that coheres together. And incidentally, going forward, my goal in structuring the length of our services at Bethesda is going to be that kind of hour. Not exactly 60 minutes necessarily, but short enough to take place within one concentrated attention span. Well, the main point in all this is that unlike the modern world, where we measure time by subdividing the day into smaller and smaller parts, the hour, the minute, the second, the hundredths of a second, the millisecond, the Bible suggests that we direct our gaze to the horizon, to something beyond ourselves and our small-minded concerns. The Bible's accounting of time emphasizes faithfulness, the things we do daily and day after day after day after day until it becomes a week and the weeks become months, and the months become years. The modern view of time emphasizes something else. The modern view of time emphasizes getting stuff done, the maximum amount of stuff that you can fit into a day. We call that productivity. Now, this doesn't mean that being productive is a bad thing. Of course not. It's just not the most important thing. And it certainly doesn't mean that dividing a day into smaller and smaller parts, hours, minutes, seconds, is a bad thing. As we heard before, the Bible does that as well. It divides the day into two parts, even before the technology existed to do that division with a lot of precision. So, as I just said, Genesis 1 divided the day into evening and morning. And as Psalm 104 makes clear, each part is ordered by God. In each part of the day, there are activities that God has ordained for his creatures. The psalmist writes, You bring darkness. It becomes night. And all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor, until evening. So the various parts of a day, according to the Bible, are for various types of of activities. 
As the book of Ecclesiastes says, there is a time for every purpose under heaven. The division of the day into hours and the division of hours into minutes and even the division of hours into seconds and hundreds of the second and milliseconds can help us to steward the time we've been given to be more productive and more faithful, to be more productive in our work, more devoted to our families, more attentive to our health, even more regular in our prayers and our praises. The tools that we use, the systems that we employ to manage time are good gifts. But if we employ them without a biblical perspective, if we don't keep the long view, if we don't have the right goal in mind, these tools can just as easily enslave us, making us more anxious, more obsessive, more possessive. The more we think we own the times, the more we find ourselves owned by that illusion. The more we ignore the ways that God has ordered the universe, the shape he's given to humanity and the rest of creation, the less human we become. The book of Jeremiah warns us of the tendency that humans have to do this. Through Jeremiah, God says, even the stork in the sky knows her seasons. That is, moedim, again, appointed times. And the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration, but my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. In other words, to please God and to feel like you're fulfilling his purpose for you, it's not enough just to work and work and work until you're exhausted. It's not even enough just to pursue your dreams. To please God and to, to feel like you're actually fulfilling a purpose, you actually have to pay less attention to yourself, less attention to how you're feeling, and more attention to how God made you to fit into the universe he created. And one of the first steps in doing that is to accept that the basic framework of our existence, which is time, does not belong to us. Time is a gift from God. It's not ours to manipulate, not ours to stretch, not ours to exploit. Time is precious, but it's a treasure that we ought to hold loosely. The irony is that the more we hoard time, the more we feel our lack of it. The more we fret, the less we understand. In Psalm 90, Moses prays that God would teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So we're supposed to think about how many days we have left, but not as a way to fill some kind of bucket list or to cram as much as we possibly can into every day. But to know that one day we will no longer be here and our time will be up and we need to know what we've used, what we will use the t days that are remaining to us for. 
In Ephesians, Paul writes that we are to redeem the time because the days are evil. Now, a lot of our modern English translations say something like, make the most of your time because the days are evil. And in a way, that's right. As long as you're not thinking of cramming, that means cram as much as you possibly can into every day. But redemption, of course, as we know, is a very rich biblical word, and that's the word that Paul uses, redemption. And it makes a lot more sense with the second part of the sentence, redeem the time because the days are evil. So precisely what these mean, numbering our days, redeeming the time, is something that we'll have to save for another day. But in any case, it'll be different for each of us because we're all at different stages of life. We all have different commitments. We all have different experiences. But what we need to remember today is that time is not a commodity, but a precious gift. What is that gift for? It's a gift that's given to us to become more like Jesus. And to learn how to do that, we'll be looking at in future sermons next week and then on into April. But for the, in the near term, it's best to look at how Jesus lived in the short amount of time that he was given. In just three years, Jesus turned the world upside down. But when you read the Gospels, you never get the sense that Jesus was in a hurry. He walked everywhere, for one thing. He seemed to always accept invitations to eat and interact with everyone who asked him to. He regularly gathered for worship. He always got up very early to pray. Sometimes he stayed up all night doing it, but he also allowed himself to sleep. But probably most telling of all, Jesus spent time with those the rest of the world considered the least important. And just like Jesus, however we may be feeling on any given day, we need to understand and accept that God has given us exactly enough time to do everything that he has called us to. Well, let's leave it there on that note, trusting that this is all the time that we have allotted for today and that he will allow us to come back and talk more about holding what we treasure so much loosely and lightly. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know that this topic was so difficult for me to wrap my mind around because it's so diff- the Bible has such a different conception of time from what we're all used to. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to go away and think deeply on this and prepare us when we, for the time that we're going to talk about it again. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us in this year and that you would help us to recognize that all the time we need is given to us to accomplish what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Moses tells us in Psalm 90, asks the Lord, actually, 
to teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. He cries out to God, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. He asks God, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. He asks God, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. And then he asks, Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. He pleads with God, Let the favor of the Lord be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes. Establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you. We echo the prayers of Moses, the man of God, that you would establish the work of our hands, but that you would make us glad and to satisfy us in the morning with your goodness. Be with us this week, this day, this week, this month, this whole year. Give us a heart of faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.